Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Willoughby's pointers. We are so excited to introduce our guest today, returning to the podcast to talk to us about dogs again, Dr. Stephanie Howard Smith. Stephanie is an animal historian with her research focused on the cultural history of animals in the long 18th century. She is a research associate at the University of York's Center for 18th Century Studies. Her doctorate work explored the role of lap dogs in 18th century British culture and society, and she has also worked as a research administrator on the AHRC-funded Pet Histories and Wellbeing Project. Her published work includes essays on a dog cull in 1760 London, porcelain dogs in international networks of exchange, and pugs and cuteness. Welcome, Stephanie! Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to talk about more 18th century, well, uh, 19th century dogs. The long 18th century. Long 18th century dogs. We love that long 18th century. <laughs> exactly. We love the long 18th century. No, this is really exciting. Well, so let's, so let's get into it right away because we, we do have so many fun questions for you. We are talking about sense and sensibility today. So at this point in the novel, the Dashwoods have moved to Devon and are settled in at Barton Cottage. Marianne and Margaret have gone for a walk, but are forced to head back home due to rain. On the way back, they decide to run down the steep hill leading back to the garden, and Marianne stumbles, falls, which leads to the following encounter. A gentleman carrying a gun with two pointers playing round him was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in her fall, and she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services, and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, he took her up in his arms without further delay and carried her down the hill. This is a pretty overt meet-cute for Austin. This is... This is a moment. Too bad it's Willoughby, but I mean, like, but it's a cute, cute moment. <laughs> if it were anybody else, it would be so swoony. Right? That's the thing, isn't it? Like, because it's, it, of all the, I suppose, the, the meetings in Austin's novels, it's the most that kind of conforms to those, those kind of romantic notions. Which is why Marianne loves it. Yeah, exactly. Why she's totally into it. It's exactly what she, she'd want. But also, obviously, as we, as we later find out, we need to be a bit suspicious of those kinds of, I don't know, broad emotions. But it's hard to be suspicious of a man with such cute dogs. So. Yes. <laughs> right? He's got these little little pointers bounding about. To get us started, Stephanie, what exactly is a pointer? Is Austin referring to a specific dog or is this more of a broad classification during this time? Okay, so a pointer is both a type of dog and a job. So previously in the past, before the advent of modern breeds in the 19th century, most dog types are named after the jobs they do or where they're from. So in the case of the pointer, they point 
at game birds that are about to take flight or be flushed out. So someone with a gun can then shoot them down. So they're before they're gun dogs, and there are several kinds of gun dogs in Britain at this period. You've got pointers, of which there are kind of a few different kinds. You've got uh, setters who do a very similar job, but rather than pointing, uh, they set so they kind of crouch down low. And you've got all the various kinds of spaniels, which are all kind of for gambling around the countryside. And when you say point, that's like lifting up their paw and sort of yeah, lifting up their paw, a kind of gesturing their body, their nose often pointing in the direction of of w- what's going on. So they they gesture with their whole bodies to let their handler, owner, caretaker, whoever know that they've seen something. They have quite good sense of smell, and um, so that's how they find the game in the first place. Uh, and then once they've seen it, they point. So in the scene at the top of the episode, we see Willoughby walking with a gun as well as with his two pointers. So this seems to be hinting at the the function for the pointers. Can you tell us a bit more about how they're working in terms of like, are they working or are they companions? Right. So yeah, so primarily they're, they're working dogs, but they're working dogs for an elite pastime, right? It's not quite the same as being a guard dog or a shepherd dog. They are... They're seen as administrators of pleasure. That's how people refer to them sometimes, because without the pointer, you can't go shooting. And if you can't go shooting, then what are you going to do with your, your spare time if you're a wealthy gentleman? So they are primarily working dogs performing this role, but obviously they're companions as well. And people get really attached to them and have very strong relationships with them. We know that some are kept for companionship primarily. There's one that's owned by a woman called Lady Trelawney in the late 18th century. Um, So women didn't really shoot at this time. Previously, hunting had been a bit more heterosocial, but from the 17th century to about the Victorian period, that wasn't the case. It was primarily a homosocial masculine sport. And when people talk about their pointers, they also talk about the other roles they performed. So one uh, pointer owner says that he feels that his pointer keeps his house safe because it can alert him if there's an intruder. So they're kind of they're primarily working dogs, but the role they perform is multifunctional. They're definitely companions to a large extent, and also perform all these other roles around around the the house as well. Would they be kept like inside? Would they be kept out in kennels? So sometimes in the house, apparently with their puppies, that seems to have been the case uh, quite a bit, but. At the age of about seven months onwards, they're introduced to a different habitat. So normally this is a kennel. And of course, kennels can take lots of different forms. When we say kennel, we just describe a place that a dog lives. That can mean either a beautiful architecturally designed building like the kennels at Goodwood in, in, in Surrey, uh, which were huge and meant to be seen from the main house, that cost a lot of money, or what we managed to be kennel, which is like a wooden shack or a brick shack. But also stables. Apparently, pointers were often found in stables. When we look at dog newspaper lost dog ads, they often say they've been taken from stables. So they're spending a lot of time in there. But it was emphasised that if you were, you had to change your pointer straw frequently, uh, especially in the summer. Check it for fleas, things like that. So these are dogs that people thought liked to be kept clean and went to efforts to keep them clean. So was there like? I know you've said that the kind of breed standards and our kind of modern conception of that is, is very different now. Was there sort of like a, a type of physical appearance that these dogs tended to have? 
when Austin is describing a pointer, would her readers have sort of envisioned a specific type of dog in their mind in terms of size and, and yeah, shape? like the visuals of it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we know this because of those lost dog adverts, because they describe dogs, the lost dog, as a pointer. And if you're posting a lost dog advert, you don't use words like that unless you know they have some currency with your intended readership. So yes, basically a pointer would be a medium to large, occasionally small apparently, they kind of they came in a range of different sizes, but generally medium to large dog, quite muscular, with a, a kind of squarish pointed snout, medium sized ears, so not like a spaniel's ears, but still drooping, occasionally clipped in various ways, often rounded out or squared, and almost entirely they were white dogs with coloured markings, a bit like how you imagine German short-haired pointers or English pointers today. Um, so they might be white with black spots or brown spots, copper spots, red spots, liver spots, blonde spots. There's one newspaper advert which describes a dog with a heart-shaped spot on its head. Oh, so, <laughs> how sweet. Yeah, very cute. Well, one of the things that I'm finding really interesting about this is the way that, you know, that you, you call them, what, what was the phrase that they're like the... The pleasured ministering pointer. So yeah, so one of the things that I am loving about this conversation is this fact that this pointer is really in charge of kind of making sure that everybody in the big houses is having fun and, and, and able to do their hunting, right? So obviously, these have to be dogs that are, and, and you've talked about kind of some of their, their maintenance and things like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the costs that are associated with pointers. These are obviously are going to have to be maintained a certain way, trained a certain way. What are we talking about here with, with price associated with pointers? Okay, so we can split this into two categories. Um, one category is how much they cost to upkeep, things like medicines and food. But the most important category is that if you have a pointer, you're probably almost certainly going to use it to go shooting because that's what they're made for. And to go shooting, you have to qualify for a shooting license. There's a, the Game Act of 1671 basically restricts the killing of game. That means birds like partridges, pheasants, as well as hares, which are less important for the pointers, to qualify people. And so to qualify for, for this, you have to have land worth more than £100 a year, or you are the heir of an esquire, knight or noble, or one of their gamekeepers. So straight away, that restricts the number of people who can really or should own pointers to about 1% of the population. It's tiny. These are, to go shooting, you have to be a member of the elite. And obviously these, these walls are a bit hazy because I really recommend Emma Griffin's book, Bloodsport. And she talks about how there are these kind of loopholes. So for instance, you could be an esquire yourself, but not own land worth more than £100. But your son could still go hunting because he's the heir of an esquire. And obviously people break these laws occasionally and because they take their servants out hunting with them or sometimes their friends. But yeah, this is the this is the first main kind of financial point to make here is that shooting was a really, really elite activity and only really accessible to, like I said, the top one percent of the population. So that's that's the first kind of restriction. The second is, apart from that, they're not the most expensive dogs to to keep. Unlike hounds, you only need one or two of them, a brace of pointers, to, to use the technical phrase. In terms of food, they probably ate 
the, the typical diet for uh, an elite working dog in in this period, which is unusually heavy cereal based. We I think at the way people market dog food now, we had this idea of a halcyon age of dogs being fed like raw prime cuts, but that wasn't the case. We're talking mainly cereals, porridges made out of things like barley meal, supplemented by things like milk or broth. Occasionally, you might have a bit of boiled horse in there or boiled sheep's foot, but primarily cereal-based, supplemented with milk or broth. Um, so not the most crazily expensive diet, but still an outlay. And then in terms of other kinds of things that a pointer owner might want to provide for their dogs, some gamekeepers recommended rubbing them down with chalk because apparently it'll stop their fur becoming greasy and it might stop the mange. And at the higher end of the spectrum, if you really, really, really cared about your pointer, you might also try and procure it healthcare. So we know that, I think about 1804, the Prince of Wales's best pointer gets the distemper. And one of his friends writes a letter about this. And he says that the dog is besieged this temper, but they had got a, a physician of some kind in. It's not clear what the, the word proceeding physician is. It could be body physician, it could be dog physician. They got him in, said that the dog would recover, uh, obviously he died. And everyone's kind of mourning the fact that this dog was so amazing. It was the best pointer they've ever seen. <laughs> oh. Now the pointer merged up to high has high standards. Oh. So if you if you exactly if you're particularly fond of your pointer, you might splash out and get some specialist healthcare in in for it. Because um, obviously these are it's not just the advances in medical in veterinary science. You know, from the period Austin's writing really is the the period where vets are becoming a bit more interested in dog healthcare. There have always been people who have administered to dogs on a kind of less formal basis, but vets are becoming more interested in it. But also just the diseases that 18th century and 19th century dogs are liable to pick up, things like distemper, which really isn't a thing anymore. But until the early 20th century was killing off entire litters of puppies and really sad. And same with rabies, which obviously is largely but in the UK is exterminated and in America obviously we have the vaccine now but until then people with these packs of dogs would write to their gameskeepers almost constantly when they're away and be like oh you know how's it going and be updated on the situation and often you know bad things would happen to them so we know from the diaries of the country parson James Woodford that a local squire his whole pack of pointers one of them is attacked by a mad dog and because one is attacked they all have to be put down apart from his favourite called Juno, which he, he keeps alive, shut up. But that was in itself a massive risk, right? Because it's not just you, it's not the dogs that can be affected by this disease, it's you, it's all the livestock in the surrounding area. Right, yeah. Well, and all of this, this is making me think too, you know, because we were talking about about the kind of costs associated with, with these dogs. This is also making me realise that not just, you know, feeding and maintaining your dogs, but you've got to have, you know, like you said, like, staff that are watching for these these things that are having to maintain and, and kind of watch for what's happening with and then yeah that the fact that you could be liable to lose pointers to to accidents or disease and you know like so it's it's something that you have to constantly be monitoring and because obviously these dogs had to be trained they, they have natural pointing instincts but they had to be trained and often, trained to guns and things like that too. yeah exactly because this is a process that could take up to two or three years so yeah they were they represented quite a considerable outlay not in terms of money necessarily but in terms of time and effort yeah 
you either had to be able to hire somebody to do it for you or to have enough leisure time to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And have that skill to be able to kind of cultivate that further. Yeah, that's a lot. So so considering all of this, you know, the finances that go into this, the maintenance that goes into this, I think this is a very, very interesting thing to know that Austin is ultimately tying Willoughby very intrinsically to pointers because she doesn't just bring it up once. It's brought up multiple times. So what do you think Austin is trying to tell us about Willoughby's character when she gives him pointers? So obviously it speaks a bit about his background that he's able to go shooting, both in terms of being qualified to do it and also having the time, the free time, right, to go out basically seemingly every morning. Not recommended, by the way. You apparently should have been able to give your pointers a break most of the week. But he's got the time to go out and do this. I think in terms of of what Marianne values, in terms of spending time outdoors, being connected with nature, mm -hmm. shooting kind of connects to that. As far as we know, Willoughby's going out shooting alone or with a single friend rather than in big parties. Uh, so he would have had to understand bird behavior to a certain extent. He'd have to have an appreciation for his dog's behavior and the behavior of the, the birds he's hunting. So I, and I think she'd find those uh, attractive qualities. But generally, I think pointers were probably the most quintessential, quintessentially genteel dog choice there was. Because they're not like lap dogs, which as we know are feminine and therefore gross and therefore no one <laughs> wants anything to do with them. They technically have a use, right? And the use, and also once you've killed the bird, you can eat it. So that's technically useful too. So that's good. Because of these hunting qualifications, they're restricted to the elite society. So really, and they're seen as very loyal, very faithful, very sagacious dogs. So whereas obviously the national dog of England is the bulldog, and people are happy to be associated with that as like an emblem and satire, they're not appropriate dogs for most of the heroes in Austen's novels because they're associated with blood sport, which is not good because largely associated with working class people, labouring sort people rather than the middling sort. So it has all those kind of class issues there. But for the most part, points are kind of seen and presented as like a, the the standard dog. I guess like a, a Labrador or Golden Retriever would hmm. be today. It has okay. all these associations with a prosperous, genteel household there's one fake petition that's presented by some dogs in 1770. It's a fa fake address that's um, especially thank humans looking after them. And it's only presented by the genteel dogs, which are the pointers, the coach dogs, so Dalmatians, and lap dogs, because the action extend to vulgar dogs. So, vulgar dogs. Wow. Vulgar dogs, exactly. Not like your genteel pointers. It's really interesting because it, it is, I feel like, for somebody like a Marianne. It's sort of giving her this, for her and her taste, this perfect intersection of sort of like rugged masculinity and I'm a man who likes to be outdoors, but also mm. very genteel, very aristocratic. I have enough money to afford this hobby. It's all the things that she likes in one package. Yeah. We get that scene later on where Willoughby is described as spending his day by himself at the side of Marianne and by his favorite pointer at her feet. and. It really does make me think of a painting and, you know, like, oh, look at us. Just we have so much time, so much leisure. 
Domestic bliss. Dom- it's domestic bliss with us and our dogs. Yes. Which is obviously so different from the image of the lone hunter with the mm-hmm. dogs and the gun. Um, so that was actually a very popular uh, artistic choice. There are lots of watercolours of men out with their dogs shooting birds. When men had portraits done, often they'd be pictured with their gun and their pointer because for the same reason, these are elite symbols of masculinity. But yeah, absolutely. I think the predator thing is really important. I mean, the society that Jane Austen was part of and also the the kind of nonconformist middling sort public were becoming increasingly uneasy uneasy with blood sports, so dog fighting, bull baiting, anything like that. And that all becomes legislated against quite soon after the novels are published. But hunting remains socially acceptable. In terms of the hunting itself, I think it's important to discuss the different kinds of shooting you could do in early 19th century England. So prior to the mid Early 18th century, most hunting of, of birds was done with, with nets and snares. No guns, because obviously they weren't very good and not very wieldy. But over the course of the 18th century, you see the development of shooting flying, which is what Willoughby's doing. So this is our kind of archetypal image of the 18th century shooter going out with his dogs on his own, maybe the friend, maybe not, and bagging a few birds. And there are all these developments. The guns are making this possible. So things like having double barrels or shorter barrels, um, which make it more possible to go out and do this. But just around the time Austin is writing, there's this new kind of shooting that's become to be more fashionable. And this is called the Batu hunt or walking up. And this is where, because people were frustrated that gun technology meant they could only get so many birds, they instead would have, they'd breed up birds release them into coverts and then during the shoot they would get in a line walk down the coat together dogs be flushed by pointers or setters or whatever's there people shoot them and in this way you know people doubled the amount of number of birds they could shoot um over the course of a year but because it was introduced from france this is seen as dangerously gallic Always got to be careful there <laughs> of course yeah and uh, again emma griffin writes about this and she talks about how it's seen as unmanly and cruel and unsensitive. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that Willoughby wouldn't be doing, right? He is very much this image of a romantic, a lone hunter, a lone wolf, rather than being part of this kind of group effort, uh, which is seen as a unfair and not such a test of your, of your skills and your senses as shooting flying is. Gotcha. Well, because it sounds like in that case, like you said, the, the birds are sort of bred and then released specifically as opposed to having to go out and actually find them find in them. the woods. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's became more common generally over the 18th century because shooting became so popular um, that natural kind of populations of game birds become depleted. So you had this, this situation where people, landowners were paying local people to send them pheasants eggs, whatever, and then sometimes they'd be put into pheasant trees and bred up and then released. And this is the same thing that's largely happening, happened with deer before they uh, became too few to hunt and also uh, with foxes. So the craze for hunting is really putting a pressure on natural animal populations at this point in time. And also as fox hunting becomes more important and more popular, border foxes eat, they eat pheasants and partridges, 
which are exactly what the shooters are after. So that puts them in in conflict with with fox hunters. Well, and 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 one of the things that I'm also just based on what we're having a conversation about, because we were talking about the finances associated with this too. So we know that Willoughby is wealthy and he's he's doing this lone hunter thing. But I find it also interesting that, of course, one of the things that motivates Willoughby, apart from you know the fact that he's a predator, um, is also finances, right? That money is something that motivates him to ultimately marry someone he doesn't care about. And so it's like almost like he's genteel enough to have pointers, but is he actually stable enough to be able to maintain pointers, I think is something that is an interesting kind of space for Austin to be creating here. Yeah. And also someone that's very much attracted to the image that goes with all of that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If he if he doesn't if he doesn't marry Miss Gray, he's not gonna be able to to go on those morning long shoots. Idleness is worth money, let alone all the gear that comes with sure. a pastime like shooting. I mean, it's like that whole conversation between Marianne and Eleanor when Eleanor's definition of wealth is a thousand pounds a year and Marianne's definition of a competence is two thousand pounds a year. So because of all the things we have to have to maintain hunters <laughs> and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, he does have cute dogs, though. <laughs> well, and speaking of the cute dogs, Sir John is obsessed with his dogs, right? So there's this part where Sir John seems to be First of all, Sir John doesn't seem to know much about Willoughby apart from the fact that he <laughs> owns pointers. What do we what do we make of that whole interaction about, you know, how how does this tell us more about Sir John? How does this tell us about maybe those interactions between those two men? So I think the the issue with Sir John's character, right, is that he's he's a nice enough guy, but he's just too, too obsessed with the hunting. Although obviously he's a standout guy and it's very supportive later on in the novel. He's a, he's a decent person, but just a bit boorish. Um, but obviously, that's that's masking deeper, more positive character qualities. Um, so just as women in Austen's novels can get too focused on certain kinds of feminine pleasures, Sir John is a mirror image of that. He is as obsessed as any lapdog owner, maybe even more so, but in this case with the with his with his dogs and and sport. Towards the end of the novel, when Willoughby is you know kind of come to plead his case while he thinks that Marianne is is dying. And he's telling Eleanor about a conversation that he has had with Sir John. It's like that even comes up in the conversation. It's just like, it's, yeah, even in the midst of sort of like capital D drama, if these two get together, somehow the dogs are going to come up, you know, it's just. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, but also he says that Willoughby's kind of baffled mm-hmm. that Sir John's mentioning this in the first place. Like even he realizes this is an inappropriate type of conversation when you talk about life or death matters. But Sir John isn't going to be put out he's gonna talk about those pointers come out of high water because that is his thing well it's like he, willoughby describes himself as like he was so shocked sir john had been kind of railing at him and then sir john's like oh i guess you're actually upset about this okay i feel kind of bad for you and so like willoughby's like yeah and i could tell that he kind of felt bad for me while he reminded me of an old promise about a pointer puppy it's There's so no high praise. Yeah, nothing better you could do. It's like, okay, I can actually see you're having a hard time with this old chap. Like, let's talk about the dogs now. It's such a perfect Sir John moment, right? Oh, yeah. I love that. <laughs> but also, like, like, let's also just point out that Willoughby thinks that this is worth reporting as well, right? That Willoughby, again, in the middle of capital D drama, is like, BT dubs, Sir John and his pointers, right? What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does actually... 
I am curious just because of that mention um, to know, was that sort of like the common way that that people acquired pointers during this time? Sort of, I mean, would you like purchase them from a pointer breeder? Was it you would get a puppy from a friend? How did that sort of economy of pointers work during this time? I think it's, it's pretty split. So lots of people did get their dogs from friends. And that'd be helpful because they'd have seen how the parents performed. They'd know if it was a good pointer or a bad pointer, how well it worked in the field. So that's definitely seen as a positive. You know what you're, you're, you're getting and you know roughly how it might perform later on in life. Also, it's another way of reinforcing bonds of friendship between different men. It, is, it, it shows you're close to someone to a certain extent. If this thing that you value highly, you're willing to share with your friends. Because obviously... Right. It had been bred carefully because there's no ways to prevent unwanted canine pregnancies at this period, at least not en masse. Um, so these dogs have been made deliberately, often with a view to their parents' attributes. So effort's gone into it. So yeah, really good in terms of reinforcing bonds of friendship, just like John is doing, so John's doing here with Willoughby. But because pointers are working gun dogs and they have to be trained, there's also a market for acquiring them from dog sellers, dog breeders, and gamekeepers. So often, if you look in London newspapers, they're advertised, along with a whole load of other either working animals like trained guard dogs or exotic animals like, I don't know, a Pomeranian or an Italian greyhound, something that's a bit more unusual. And they're advertised as ready-to-work, broken. Sometimes you might have... In terms of gameskeepers, they might offer a trial with the dog, so you know before you get the dog whether it's going to be a dud or not, which is helpful. Although there are some, even some court cases where the dogs run off on the trial and it, it's debatable who the dog belongs to and how much money is owed. Um, so that's also quite thorny. And also because the brokenness of the dog, quote unquote, is so important, because train pointers are so much more valuable than other pointers, sometimes you see in the lost dog ads... I've noticed that often pointers are, pay, are posted for over the odds. So generally the going rate for a lost dog is about half a guinea. But some pointers, the owners ask them for six guineas. Oh, wow. Or offering six guineas. So that's an evidence of how, that's a testament to how important they are to their, sure. to their owners. Yeah. But sometimes because of this, when these pointers go missing, people will emphasize the dog's a puppy and it hasn't been trained. So it's not worth as much. So they're... Their worth is directly correlated to the training that's been put into them, which makes perfect sense. So you could imagine that, you know, Sir John and Willoughby sort of residing in the same part of the country, that there would be like a, oh, I've got a new litter. Come on over. Take a look. Neighborly gesture kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that afterwards you'd write about in your letters to your friends or your family, reporting how other dogs doing, because you've got a, a vested interest in it then. But yeah, absolutely. A very natural relationship bond there that Sir John's trying to, yeah. to push, especially when he thought Willoughby was such a great guy. It would also, in some ways, reinforce that Willoughby becomes a more semi-permanent fixture in the Dashwood society as well. You know, if, if Sir John, because they live, you know, next to Sir John in the Barton Cottage, if Willoughby and the Pointers are something that become a fixture there, it would be something that would kind of be like the salt in the wound kind of thing because you know Sir John would never shut up about the pointer yeah <laughs> and Marianne would just have to be like taking that over and over and over again so again I Sir John good guy but maybe not always thinking through 
the situation. It's even long term, no. Well, Stephanie, is there anything else about pointers from this time period that we should know about? There's some great pointer art, is what I would say. Because, again, these are dogs of the elite, dogs that men are invested in. Uh, And also seen as individuals a bit more than hounds are, right? Because you hunt with one or two rather than a pack. Of course, you're going to have a dog immortalized in in portraiture. Then the pointers are perfect subjects. So some of the best animal painters of the age in France, you've got Jean-Baptiste Oudry. He paints various uh, pointers, often from the Versailles kennels, including one called Polydor. Oh. Yeah, great name. And in England, George Stubbs paints quite a few pointers. You've got Phyllis the pointer. And... uh, comes on the kind of archetypal pointer images so check out those paintings excellent thank you so much stephanie for joining us again thank you it's been an absolute pleasure so where can our listeners find you online learn more about your work all of that so i'm on twitter at sa howard smith i have an instagram account called dog historian which i update sporadically but also I've written for the public about dog history, um, for History Today and State Magazine. So if you're interested in that side of things, uh, if you just Google my name and, and dogs, you should be able to, to find me. <laughs> Google Stephanie Howard Smith and dogs and it will come up. Perfect. Thank you again to Dr. Stephanie Howard Smith for joining us for this episode. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about Marianne's washing. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.